You're listening to Rates and Lanes with Rico Mohammed. This is the show where we improve your knowledge of the freight market, improve your bottom line, and improve the transportation industry as a whole. We're talking Rates and Lanes. Let's move on down the audio road. Good evening, everyone. This is Rico Mohammed coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. Well, just outside of Atlanta, Georgia tonight. Uh, we are here with you tonight. We missed having a show last week. Had a little special occasion on my end. Grant, my uh, my daughter was uh, graduating from high school, so we had a lot of stuff going on on my end. It was like trying to herd cats around my around my place all last week. But we've gotten that girl across the stage and uh, getting ready to send her off to college, and now we're back here doing what we try to do and share a little information. We have our special guest on board with us tonight, transportation attorney extraordinaire Henry Seaton will be joining us. So if you have any questions for transportation law, whether it's depending upon uh, you have some contracts or some different negotiations, uh, detention issues, anything surrounding transportation law, Hank can definitely help you out and assist you with any questions that you may have involving that. So you can go ahead and press the number one to get up and on board if you got a question for Hank or myself. And as we normally start the show out with, with no further ado, uh, actually we're going to start out this week with the uh, the bad and ugly broker list. Uh, this is, has been gaining a little bit of popularity ever since we started doing it a couple of weeks back. Uh, this list can actually, that I'm going to be reading from tonight, I think it may be a little bit of a better list. We are, it's actually a feature that is offered through truckstop.com. They have, as part of their, uh, one of their tiers on their uh, low board, you can have these alerts sent to you, and it's kind of the latest edition. And this list seems to grow more and more every time we look on there, unfortunately. But um, we're just going to start out with the people that are been added to the list for the month of May, and uh, we have Faye Stewart Transportation Services, LLC, Faye Stewart, MC number 406-587, over $10,000 in non-payment complaints have been reported to truckstop.com. They have them listed as an extreme risk. Nationwide Truck Lines, LLC, MC number 945-764. FMCSA shows trust fund canceled over uh, $22,000 in non-payment complaints. World Trans Services, Inc., MC number 469917. Over $34,000 in unpaid carrier invoices reported to truckstop.com. They have them listed as an extreme risk. Unique Service Brokerage, Firm LLC. Their MC number is 687-402. FMCSA shows trust fund canceled. Over $10,000 in non-payment complaints. High risk. Tenant Truck Lines, Inc. MC number 146-754. Surety bond uh, scheduled for cancellation on 5-12-16. Over $52,000 in non-payment complaints reported to truckstop.com. Trans Freight United, LLC, MC number 946-226. Trust fund set to cancel on 5-4-16. Over $61,000 in non Payment complaints reported to truckstop.com. Extreme risk. Lee's Loading Services, LLC. MC number is 419839. Over $13,000 in non payment complaints reported to truckstop.com. And rounding out the list, our specialty transportation services, LLC. MC number 642821. Trust fund canceled over one hundred and fifty-eight thousand dollars 
and non-payment complaints reported to truckstop.com. So, ladies and gentlemen, that rounds out the list of the bad and ugly brokers for the month of May. Hopefully, um, we won't have anyone on the list this time that uh, is a listener of this show. But as we always say, when you're in your negotiations, when you're talking to brokers, when you're dealing on the spot market, you want to make sure that you're doing a thorough vetting process. And that may be something that, since we got Hank on the line tonight as well, that may be something that uh, we may be able to uh, see, get some advice from Hank on some of the things, some of the steps that we may be doing uh, or some things that we may need to incorporate while we're uh, considering extending credit to these brokers. Because remember, you are the one that is uh, extending your services out there. You are extending credit to that broker or that shipper. And uh, just like anybody else, you want to make sure that you're taking on a good risk whenever you're doing anything and that you want to be compensated for your time and your services. And moving on from the bad and the ugly trucker list, we'll jump over into the USDA fruit and vegetable truck rate report for this week. This report came out today, Wednesday. Uh-oh. USDA may be a little bit behind schedule. Let's see. Uh, let's see if we can get the refresh button. They have not updated today. Hmm. This is uh, an old report, ladies and gentlemen. I apologize for that, but the USDA has not reported, has not up, updated their report uh, as of 7:06 p.m. tonight. Uh, so, according to this report, you have two places with slight shortages, and I'm going to be refreshing this throughout the show to make sure if we can, if we get an updated report. Sometimes they're running a little bit behind schedule. You know how the government works. Uh, but we have slight shortages being reported in the Imperial Valley, California area, out on the West Coast, and also on the East Coast, we have Eastern North Carolina reporting slight shortages in those two areas. Uh, there's one area that is showing a slight surplus of trucking capacity, and that is in Yakima Valley, Winchy District, Washington. And outright surpluses are being reported in San Luis Valley, Colorado, and Minnesota, North Dakota, Red River Valley area, outright surpluses, uh, according to this report. Every other area is showing an adequate supply of trucks, load the trucks in those areas. And we're going to be refreshing this to see if we get a new updated report for tonight. Uh, that was last week's report, but since we didn't do a show last week, I guess we'll throw that little pertinent information out there. Um, for this week, the DAT trend lines report for May 15th through the 21st, van and reefer rates edged down one cent per mile, and flatbed rates were unchanged as the national average load-to-truck ratios rose. However, so rates were, however, uh, some rates may increase this week. Of course, uh, I always try to say once reefer freight really kicks into high gear, it kind of helps lift. It's, it's kind of like a rising tide. It helps lift across every segment, and it, ba it kind of balances out the load-to-truck ratios in every segment, in my opinion, from what I've been watching over the past couple of years since we've been doing this. So let's jump into the uh, U.S. van demand and capacity report for the previous week. Demand for vans dipped 2% while capacity fell 3% last week. And that pushed up the load-to-truck ratio 1% to 1.7 loads per truck nationally. The national average van rate slipped by $0.01. Cents. At this same time, last month, April ratios had fallen 6%. Compared to March, load postings were down 9% in April. Truck postings fell 3%, which led to a 6% decline in the load-to-truck ratio from 1.6 to 1.5 loads per truck. Compared to April of 2015, the ratio has dropped by 46%. Let's take a look over and see how van rates were performing nationally. Excuse me one second, ladies and gentlemen.
All right, I apologize about that, ladies and gentlemen. As usual, we get stuck sometimes. seems like everything goes haywire times the show comes on. <laughs> We're over here getting loaded up, trying to get ready to uh, head up to Charlotte for the evening. But uh, where was I? Okay, back to the national rate for vans. National average spot market rate vans slipped for by one cent, down to $1.53 per mile last week. Outbound rates rose in Los Angeles, Buffalo, but fell in Chicago. The national average price of diesel rose by six cents last week, up to two dollars and thirty-six cents per gallon on average nationally. Taking a look around the country, we have van rates coming out of the northeastern portion of the United States. Philadelphia, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is the reporting city, showing an average rate of a dollar forty-five cents per mile coming out of Philadelphia. Down into the southeastern portion of the United States for dry vans, we have Atlanta, Georgia checking in, showing an average rate of $1.72 per mile. Moving up into the midwestern portion of the United States, Chicago, Illinois checks in, showing an average rate for dry vans at $1.71 per mile. Moving down into the south central portion of the United States, Dallas, Texas checks in, showing an average rate for dry vans at $1.47 per mile. And setting the high water benchmark out on the west coast, the left coast, the city of Angels, Los Angeles, California, shows an average rate for dry vans at a whopping $1.92 per mile, which is pretty doggone good right now for dry vans. Moving over into the uh, flatbed demand and capacity report. Flatbed load availability declined 6%, while capacity declined 10% last week. That led to a 5% increase in the load-to-truck ratio from 14.7 loads per truck up to 15.4 loads per truck. The national average flatbed rate was unchanged compared to the previous week. Taking a look back at this time last month in April, flatbed Flatbed load postings rose 9% compared to the previous month. Capacity dropped 11%, which resulted in 23% increase in the load-to-truck ratio from 17.5 that jumped up to 21.5 loads per truck compared to April of 2015. The ratio was up by 1%. So flatbed seems to be pretty strong as far as the demand is concerned. Let's see how rates were performing. Uh, flatbed rates held steady at $1.91 per mile nationally on the spot market for the third week in a row. Flatbed demand fell 6% last week, but the load-to-truck ratio rose by 5%. So taking a look across the country, starting out in the northeastern portion of the United States, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania checks in showing average rates for flatbeds at $3.51, setting the high water mark coming out of that area. Moving down into the southeastern portion of the United States, Atlanta, Georgia checks in showing average rates on the spot market for flatbeds at $2.22 per mile. Moving up into the midwestern portion of the United States, Rock Island, Illinois checks in, showing average rate for flatbeds at $2.38 per mile. Down in the south central portion of the United States, Houston, Texas checks in, showing an average rate of $1.96 per mile. Out on the west coast, this time bringing up the rear, out of Phoenix, Arizona, showing an average rate of $1.71 per mile for flatbeds. And let's move on and jump over into the reefer demand and capacity report for the week of May 15th through 21st. Low postings increased 2% for reefers last week, and truck capacity declined 14%. That yielded an 18% increase in the load-to-truck ratio from 2.8 up to 3.3 loads per truck. The national average reefer spot market rate dipped by one cent. At this time last month, reefer load postings had declined 9% in April compared to March. The truck posts added 1%. That combination led to a 10% decline in the national load to truck ratio 
from 3.1 down to 2.8 loads per truck compared to April of 2015. The ratio slid 54%. Let's move on and check on the actual rates for reefers. Reefer rates slipped one cent last week to a national average of $1.87 per mile despite a seasonal increase in demand. So, taking a look around the country, up in the northeastern portion of the United States, Elizabeth, New Jersey is the representative city showing an average rate coming out of that area on the spot market at $1.52 per mile. Moving down into Lakeland, Florida, we have reefer rates being reported in the southeastern portion of the United States, averaging $1.81 per mile. Moving into the Midwest, Green Bay, Wisconsin, and as usual, setting the standard at $2.24 per mile coming out of the Midwest. Down in the Rio Grande, business is starting to pick up. McAllen, Texas is showing average rate for spot market reefer rates at $1.88 per mile. And, of course, out west, business is really starting to pick up out that way as well. Fresno, California, checking in, showing average reefer rates at $2.03 per mile on the spot market. And that, ladies and gentlemen, wraps up our DAT trend lines report for the Rates and Lanes broadcast. And with no further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's go and grab our special guest. Let's not keep him waiting, Mr. Hank Seaton. Let's bring him on. Hank, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, you talked about some of my favorite topics tonight, uh, broker abuse. Uh, uh, if you want to start in on that, that would be great. The floor is yours, my friend. Okay, uh, it's a little timely that this would come up because it seems to be my broker abuse day. Uh, first of all, I've looked at a contract <laughs> for somebody that uh, I think is is a listener. I won't call him out by name, but he asked me to look at a contract, and it made my blood boil because it's one of the worst ones I've seen. I'll just cover a couple of the provisions in it. First of all, <clears throat> under the dispatch provision, the broker wanted to strike out the idea that the carrier would provide reasonable dispatch. The reason he wanted to do that was he wanted to hold the carrier liable for making a delivery, a time delivery, notwithstanding the hour of service. That is really coercion. Uh, at this point in the game, no broker or shipper can tell you you have to deliver by a time certain, particularly if your hours of service don't allow it. Um, for them to put in a provision in a contract that suggests your driver must speed or break the hours of service is a no-no. The second issue that he put into the contract Can I stop you right there real quick for a sure. second? Moment? Okay. What if you're in that situation where you, you, you have a situation where they're, they're uh, telling you, well, it's got to deliver by this time, and say, for instance, I know I pull reefers, and you may be delivering to a place that has certain hours. Um, and if you don't have the rules circulated, because a lot of people, you know, just going to be real world with it. A lot of people, they hear us talking about the rules circulated and stuff, but a lot of people may not have those uh, things incorporated. But they get into a well, situation where they're going, yeah, through, the, um, the, going to make a delivery. Well, the, the issue is, uh, when you sign the broker or the shipper contract, you've got to read it. And if you accept an impossible task, then you're probably hung with it ordinarily. Uh, the bill of uh -oh. lading says that a carrier is not required to make a delivery to meet any particular sailing or marking, but is only required to make delivery with reasonable dispatch. Uh, the agency came out with coercion rules in January that basically said it was a crime for any party to require a driver to break a federal safety rule. Breaking a federal safety rule includes uh, telling him he's got to speed or telling him that he's got to violate the hours of service. So the upshot of that is that while it would be hard to file a complaint against a shipper or broker unless he actually told your driver on the dock 
I don't care what your hours are, it's got to be there by, at Hunts Point by such and such time or it's going to be rejected. That's coercion. That's something that you can uh, actually prosecute a shipper for, for uh, I think it's a 10 or $16,000 fine. But moreover, when you put that provision in a contract, cliffidly shoving down on the carrier the obligation to make a delivery at a time certain, regardless of whether uh, uh, the uh, hours permit. So what happens? Uh, your driver is speeding through a school zone trying to make a delivery, and he gets uh, involved in a wreck, and plaintiff's bar wants the key to the truck line. And meanwhile, uh, the, the police officer at the wreck side says, driver, why were you going so fast? And the driver said, well, if I didn't get to my favorite grocery store in 15 minutes, I was going to have to sit for three weeks. Well, that information then goes back to plaintiff's bar, who names the shipper in the lawsuit, and here you go. Uh, when I say here you go, the shipper in turn wants you to indemnify him because he put a provision in a contract that increased his liability. And so that's the reason that this kind of waiving reasonable dispatch gives a sophisticated shipper an opportunity to say, look, Mr. A sophisticated carrier, the opportunity to say, look, Mr. Shipper, you don't want to put this in here. This is like laying a landmine that you're going to step on. Because, you know, I'll keep in contact with you. I'll tell you uh, when I'm going to be there. I'll tell you if I've got to be delayed. But don't tell me in a contract that I've got to uh, either pay a big penalty or get it there quicker than the law allows. Now, you know, if you want to pay for team service or something, that may be a different thing. But, uh, you know, FedEx and UPS uh, aren't going to wait around two weeks to make delivery. Uh, and, you know, uh, every truckload carrier these days and, and, and needs to be paid to wait because the hours of service rules are so strict that, you know, if we get off our 11-hour drive time, we can't move that damn truck for 10 hours. And some of that, some right. of that is having to explain the facts to uh, shippers and brokers. And unfortunately, what happens is contracts like this for somebody who's just getting started, it's so important to have the load, they just take the risk. But I promise you, uh, uh, carriers who've been in business a while will not do that. So, you know, I'm, I'm not saying necessity is not the mother of invention. I'm just saying that that reasonable dispatch, when, when I read it, says, this uh, uh, this this broker is trying to take advantage of the carrier. Wow! So wow, okay. that's just good stuff. That's just, good stuff. Wow. That's just one example. Uh, the next one here is I see this very often, and it goes right to the heart of what we're talking about in terms of broker abuse. It's a provision that says that the carrier's sole recourse is the broker. There's no interest or attorney's fees and the carrier has no recourse to the shipper or any other party. When you give up recourse to the shipper and don't put your name on the bill of lading, you give up the most effective collection tool you have. Now, I've got real problems with carriers who turn over their invoices to uh, uh, the uh, sleazy collection agencies that immediately go to a shipper on a brokered load and start demanding payment and don't bother to look to see if there's really a contract between the carrier and the shipper. Uh, but if you want to preserve recourse, you be sure you don't sign something waiving it in a contract and you get your name on the bill of lading as the carrier record. And if you go pick up a bill of lading and you see SWIFT or a U.S. Express on it and you didn't deal with SWIFT or U.S. Express, smell a rat. Smell a rat. If there's somebody's name on that bill of lading you didn't contract with, then you know maybe you want to check the chain of command because that load has been double the triple brokered. Let, let me let me so, ask you this. I got a scenario as well. Just while while we're on the subject, um, I've had I fielded a phone call before from a broker, and um, they basically have. Uh, some local loads, but they're illegal as all get out. Um, 
they want they have these crazy pickup times and they got crazy delivery times that they have they they have them set for. Um, is there like a I don't know. I guess the word I'm looking for is there like a whistleblower type thing that uh, some guys could get into to, that you could do to report some of these guys to uh, FMCSA to try to help uh, clean up some of this stuff. Well, don't count on the government trying to help small business do anything. Uh, but there is this narrow window on the coercion rule uh, that would apply if a driver is told a time of pickup. I don't care how many how many times how many hours you've got left, but you've got to make this delivery by 6 a.m. or you're not going to get paid for your freight charges. You're going to have to wait six hours, whatever it is. That's coercion, and that's that's subject to a fine. And there is a way to file a complaint. Uh, the 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 bad boy board, uh, the reporting those continual abuse. Uh, I'm working with a group now that is. Uh, that is trying to do, I gather, what you're talking about in terms of, of your list of non-payment. But it would be a uh, a tool for small carriers to report what they consider to be uh, abuses by brokers, like as in uh, uh, this broker requires us to make deliveries uh, under under penalty of no uh, uh, no detention or monetary fines that are not legal. You know, that kind of information is, is probably a, a, a valid uh, a valid thing to report to uh, try to deal with this abuse because most time the broker's got the money and he's held up reasonable attention or he's tried to fact charge you and uh, if it's in the contract, you're hung. But, you know, at least you can wear a... a uh, use this as a way to advise uh, uh, your brother truckers that uh, you know there are these kinds of abusive uh, provisions and standard contracts with some brokers. Gotcha. And you know gotcha. I, maybe maybe at a later maybe at a later podcast uh, uh, you know I, uh, with your permission uh, Rico we can invite invite the people that are doing this uh, on to talk about it but. Uh, I think there's a real need for a couple of things, a better system to report broker abuse and a better system to report gaps in people's cargo insurance if they don't understand. Right, right. That that, that could be a doozy right there. Um, is, is there any more highlights you want to hit on those contracts that you got right there in front of well, you? Well, yeah, I mean, there, there are a bunch. I, you know, I'm more than happy to take questions. don't want it to be a monologue. But here, here is another one. It says where a seal is placed on the carrier, uh, the carrier must maintain seal intact until it's removed by an authorized employee at time of delivery. Carrier is liable for all claims, losses, and liability arising out or resulting from any unauthorized removal of the seal broken seal, missing seal, or mismatched seal number. Carrier is solely responsible for insuring the cargo and shall have unlimited liability. Now, I mean, you look at it this way, a broken seal doesn't a cargo claim make, uh, and a shipper has an absolute duty to mitigate damages. What this guy is saying is you've only got to have $100,000 worth of insurance, but your cargo limits may be unlimited. Not only may we put in expensive Louis Vuitton stuff that's uh, that's worth $250,000, another paragraph here that says, Carrie shall also be liable for incidental and consequential damages resulting from delay in delivery, including any stoppage in production caused by the delay. So, in other words, you may not know it, but this, this load may be going to uh, somebody's assembly line, and because you're late, they may lay uh, off a staff of 100 for a few hours and send you the bill, and under this provision, you just accepted liability for it. Hmm. So I hmm. ask you now, you know, uh, don't get so anxious to haul the load that you sign these kind of contracts and they get put in some shipper's file to be pulled out on you three years later when they claim you shut down a production plant because that's not covered by your insurance. 
and that liability can be unlimited. So, I mean, I hope you see where I'm going. Uh, words have meaning, and all of the words that I have been quoting here is uh, far greater liability for cargo than you'd have if you simply said, I'll be liable for you under the, uh, to the extent of the existing statutes, but my limit of liability is $100,000 unless we made some kind of special arrangements because you certainly don't want your legal obligation to outrun the amount of insurance that you have. Absolutely. Well, we got a couple of people with their hands raised. Okay. And uh, let's, let's, let's see if we can take a couple of questions real quick, real quickly here. Let's grab Steve. Steve, you're up and on board live with Rico and Hank. How can we help? Okay. I think that he did uh, touch on this, but it's been my understanding that if one put their company name and MC number on the bill of lading, even if the broker doesn't pay, the shipper would be liable and have to pay. Is that correct? Yes, that is generally correct. Uh, when I say generally correct, there is a place on the bill of lading for a shipper to sign what's called non-recourse, and it says something like this, if the shipment is be delivered to the consignee without recourse, the consignee or the consignee will sign this block. If that block is signed on the... <coughs> <coughs> on the bill of lading, you don't have recourse to shipper, but otherwise you do. The big issue that I have right now in representing both carriers and brokers is if a broker pays an invoice to the guy he hires and there's not some third party's name on the bill of lading, then he is really being defrauded by that third party because that third party if they don't get their money from the guy they contracted, it's kind of hard-pressed to come in 180 days later and say, oh, by the way, I was the guy that hired that loan. The reason that's, I think, uh, improper is because the law says that the authorized carrier will issue the bill of lading. And by issue the bill of lading, we mean sign it, showing that he's the person in possession and control. I've got this uh, argument. I'm going to have to write this letter tomorrow to one of my least favorite collection agencies, they just sent out a letter to uh, my brokers, uh, uh, shippers and brokers, saying, we're going to sue you unless you pay this in 10 days. And obviously that's playing hell with the broker's uh, customers. Uh, the broker, uh, this is the first he learned of it. He was given clean bills of lading by the carrier he hired to pay him. So as you can see, just in terms of being honest business people, he had no idea that the load had been double brokered. And, uh, you know, your equitable rights to go up the supply chain can be frustrated by your own lack of attention. So the take-home is don't sign a contract saying that you look only to the broker. And when you issue the bill of lading, be sure that your name is clearly shown as Rico's Cartage, okay, by Rico Muhammad. This idea of just coming in and not putting your name on it uh, is bad practice. We've got new uh, food safety uh, rules coming down that are going to reemphasize the need for chain of custody. We've got it on everything going through uh, TSA and the federal transportation laws uh, require that the name of the carrier be on the bill of lading. So, you know, I just think that needs to be SOP in terms of how you operate and how your drivers operate. Okay. Uh, one and, more and question. Go ahead, Steve. Uh, okay. Do you have a list of uh, brokers that just have really bad contracts? Well, yeah, I got my private uh, my private file full of them. Uh, but I, I, what I'm uh, what I was suggesting is uh, I'm working with the. Uh, someone who's going to offer that service on a, you know, on a on a web-based thing, and it, it may be, it may be a uh, a month before it's it's really operational. When you do that, you run the risk of slandering people. So you've got to have, you know, a uh, an ombudsman to call balls and strikes, uh, and let uh, uh, let a broker offer a response. But I think the good thing about it is going to be that once it goes live, 
if you get the kind of 15 or 20 reports, it's kind of like going to TripAdvisor where people report on their stays in the motels. You know, you don't have to read many of them to figure out that two or three of them are homers from the nephew or the owner of the hotel. But when you get consistently bad reports, you know, you can beware. So, you know, if there are people on the uh, call that think that's a good idea, uh, if you'll send me your email, uh, Rico will give you my address at the end, uh, and just say, I'm interested in that program, uh, I'll forward it on to the, to the people that are actually setting it up. It's not something that, you know, I'm going to do directly, but I do think there's a, a real need for a, for an independent association that does it. I mean, you know, the, the uh, uh, TIA has got its watchdog. It's uh, putting all the carriers on it that they that they think are underinsured or engaged in sleazy practices. There needs to be the same kind of reporting system available to small carriers. Excellent. Thank you so much. Right. Appreciate the call, Steve. And um, just to go back to the topic where we were talking about making sure that you are the carrier of record, and uh, just to empower listeners that, that are listening in, um, you know, what if you have a situation uh, where the shipping clerk or whatever, some it, it, it really is surprising the amount of people that are in the shipping, uh, you know, in the logistics business, and don't really understand uh, that whole aspect. I had a, I, I, I once personally had a situation to where uh, I was I have a stamp that I take in and I stamp the bill of ladens when I'm going in and I'm doing stuff uh, with my with all my my the name of the car my carrier my MC number and all that good stuff. And I, I I scratch out a broker's name if the broker's name is on there. And I had a I had a little blue haired lady just. Uh, uh, you know, go up one side of me and come back down the other. Don't scratch out nothing on my knee. That's what we're dealing with, and that's who we want on the bill of lading. And I said, well, ladies, you can have them on the bill of lading, but it can't go on my trailer. Uh, just want to, you know, um, can you maybe speak to that a little bit to try to, you know, just advise some of the listeners that may yeah. be listening yeah. in how and how. Well, you know, that, that behooves me to talk about another contract that I have seen today. And it is a shipper-broker contract. And the shipper wants the broker to be liable for the cargo claims and wants to put the broker's name on the bill of lading as the carrier. Now, the reason that some shippers want to do that is, by and large, their corporate traffic manager doesn't exist, and they've got some lawyer that doesn't understand commerce law who says, we want you to contract with this intermediary. We want the intermediary solely responsible for the carrier as if the carrier were his owner operator. So that's why they come out with those kinds of things, and they want to put uh, the, uh, the, 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 the crosshairs right on the broker. Uh, some say that they want to have the broker listed on the bill of lading because they want to know who they contracted with for payment purposes. But what they miss is, and, you know, sometimes it takes an education. You can say, well, blue-haired lady, look, uh, if uh, I I'm telling you this straight, that, you know, if, if I don't get there with this load intact, somebody's going to be filing a claim against my insurance company, and my cargo insurance company ain't going to pay for it unless my name's on the bill of lading, because every cargo policy says that, uh, you know, they'll pay for your legal liability that you've assumed by a contract, or by a, uh, a bill of lading. And then you say, look, you know, uh, I'm not stealing your load, but you need to know that I'm the carrier that's been hired to haul it. Have you ever given you, somebody walked in here and said they applied for a broker and then just simply stole your load? Well, it goes on. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, you're probably not doing your job unless you know that the guy you hired is someone who's licensed, authorized, and insured. Because, you know, the way you're doing business, I could I could come in here with a with a, a, a truck driver who was 16 years old on, on Benny's and nobody's responsible for him, and as soon as he hit somebody outside your gate, you'd be sued for negligent entrustment. I mean, the shipping community doesn't really realize what the hell they're asking for. 
so, you know, it just should be Hornbook law that the bill of lading reflects a contract of carriage between a shipper and a carrier in which the carrier pledges to deliver the load on time and intact in return for the ultimate obligation of the shipper to pay the freight charges. And the role of the broker, and most of the courts say this, the role of the broker is as the assumed agent of the shipper. So it's perfectly fine. Now, I, would tell a, I would tell a shipper every day, if you're going to hire a, a, a trans place as your 3PL, mark your bill of lading as uh, uh, send freight bill to trans place, sign section 7, and then find out from trans place who they're sending in to pick up the load and be sure that the name on the side of the truck matches the name the Transplace gives you. Now, that doesn't sound too damn complicated to me. Uh, and, you know, before I'd let somebody show up with a truck in my front yard and haul off $100,000 worth of my goods, I think I'd want some verification that he, that he was who he's supposed to be. And, you know, I mean, I think we're talking about just what is plain common sense. But uh, I can't tell you how many bills... I look at that have nobody's name on it or have the broker's name. And frankly, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for a shipper that after the fact says, well, I don't know who had the load. I don't even know who's supposed to pick it up. Right, right. Well, so I think uh, you're doing exactly the right thing. Yes, sir. We've seen here that... Uh, House committee advances bill with trucking reforms on hours of service pending owner-operator rate ruling. We talked a little bit about that at, uh, before we came on, on live. Uh, what can you update us with on this new hours of service reforms or rollback? Well, most of what you're getting is, I think, much to do about nothing. Uh Frankly, uh, organized trucking got the hours of service so screwed up coming through the FAST Act that they really didn't correct what they were supposed to correct. Uh, the issue has been they're making the FMCSA do a study on the two consecutive overnight provisions of the restart. And while the agency is studying that again, there was supposed to be basically a continuing regular uh, resolution that said you'd have the benefit of the 34-hour restart, but you wouldn't have to sit down for two overnight hours over the weekend and only be able to start on Monday morning at 6 o'clock. So that was supposed to be written out of uh, uh, extended in the FAST Act, and it wasn't. And ATA has been all wrapped around trying to get that back in. But there are a couple of other issues that right now are in the uh, uh, the House bill that uh, would really be helpful, I think, uh, if they don't get fudged up by the Democrats or if Obama doesn't uh, veto it. And those other things that uh, don't show up in transport topics because ATA's big deal is, uh, is the restart are these. First, as we mentioned before, the agency came out with its notice of proposed rulemaking trying to change all of the safety rules, and it was in direct contravention of the FAST Act that said you can't come out with any new rule until you consider the effect on all aspects of the shipping community and until there's a study done on SMS. While, uh, you know, I burned a lot of midnight oil filing comments on that on Monday, uh, there's been an independent action to put into the appropriations bill, which uh, FMCSA needs to survive, a provision that says take down that notice of proposed rulemaking. And that's in this omnibus legislation. There are 20 changes to the FMCSA's uh, authority that are in this bill. That's another important one. Um, uh, there, There's two other really important ones and they relate to anybody who's on the phone from California. California uh, needs to either secede from the nation or get in line with everybody else because they keep putting in their own little their own little rules 
that really are an impediment to interstate commerce, uh, such as some kind of crazy rule that says they uh, ultimately may want uh, overtime, a time and a half for any truck driver uh, to work more than 40 hours, and they don't seem to realize that that's preempted under the Fair Labor Standard Act. But they've also got these crazy rules about having to take meal breaks and all that kind of stuff, which means that when you hit the California border, all of a sudden you've got a whole new regime to comply with. And one of the proposals would emphasize that under state law, you can't undermine the uniform uh, regulations. Now, that's something that is called the Dunham Act in the last Congress, uh, it's a very, very good idea to uh, keep states from uh, uh, becoming a patchwork quilt that no, nobody can operate on. I mean, you know, I, I think it's getting so bad that most people just want to relay their freight at, at, at Reno or Las Vegas. But you know, we know that that's, that's not economical. And we don't need to be further straightjacketed by states like Massachusetts and California. So that's a that's a very important issue, too. The inside politics of that is uh, most small businesses support all of these. Uh, the ATA uh, uh, wants the restart matter taken care of and is probably willing to bargain and swap some other things if necessary. OIDA is uh, uh, particularly on our side with respect to this new safety fitness determination and is a little bit lukewarm about some of the provisions that would be trumped that uh, might result in increases in wages for drivers. So to say that it's it's an inside-the-beltway fight is understated to say that as a pebblicite, how would it how would I say you vote? You vote for everything that's in the House bill. So, how's that for a summary? Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, we got uh, a couple more people who's got their hands raised. Let's see if we got uh, Hank here that has a question. Hank, you're on live with Rico and Hank. How can we help? Hello, hello, Hank. Are you there? Hello. Yes, Hello? sir. You on live? Rico and Hank. Yes, yes, sir. This is George. Okay, it's George. Okay, George, you got a you got a you got a question for? <laughs> yes, uh, yes, I have a question. Um, I'm having trouble. I just started with my uh, my with my own authority, and I'm signing up with this uh with this company uh, directly with them. But I'm just barely, mainly going to do local over in California. Trying to figure out what to charge for the local. Trying to figure out what to, what to charge for local. Um, when you say you're signing a way to fix- with the company, are, are, you, are you going to pull the loads under your own authority or are you going to be an owner-operator? No, I'm pulling my, my loads under my own authority. Okay. And well, uh, I'm just... Uh-huh. Yeah, the, in terms of in terms of pricing, uh, Rico may be able to help you more than I do. But you know, people are beginning to look at time as money, uh, and so it's certainly not something that you do by the the hall. If it's if it's repeat business, I think you need to figure out that not counting the fuel, uh, but you know, you need to you, you need to get uh, six seven hundred dollars something like that. Uh, for for a day minimum, uh, of course your costs go down if you don't have a whole lot of uh, of uh, uh, fuel. But uh, absent that, uh, you know, if they're going to tie you up at the dock four hours loading and four hours unloading, and you're going to have a round trip of eight hours, you, you need to be paid for a full day. So you're going to have to amortize all your costs and your insurance and everything else. Rico, oh, okay. how do you how do you view? Right. Right, and, and and I'm gonna put you back on hold because got a little bit of background noise there, and I, hopefully you can hear us still. Uh, but Hank, you hit the, you hit the ball dead. Definitely, you hit the ball out of the park on that one. What you definitely want to want to make sure that you're doing is that you know your daily cost of operation. That's like um, starting out one on one. 
you know, that's one of the things we're big proponents on, making sure that you understand and know your numbers for your particular operation. You know, do you have a good grasp on what your fixed costs are? Do you have a good grasp on what your variable costs are? And if, and if it's something local, it's going to be something daily, then you can kind of project those numbers out and come up with a, a, a good daily rate to make sure that you include profitability within that rate. So, you know, something like that, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what your operation is, but, you know, I don't, I think that, you know, uh, if something five days a week, um, you know, based upon just average numbers, I would be comfortable living with trying to knock down somewhere in the ballpark of uh, anywhere of a range of 900 to $1,200 a day would be something that I would be, you know, um, just using basic average numbers based on my operation and, and just based on, uh, uh, you know, the numbers that I know that I'm working with on my end. But, of course, if you're in California, there's a different cost of living and everything that's associated with that. So that may vary a little bit, but you have to make sure that you're intimately aware and, uh, um, and, and that, uh, of your personal numbers for your business to make sure that you are yeah. putting yourself in. Yeah, some, of the, some, of the, some of the things that affect that is your your tractor and your trailer payment. Uh, you know, I have I have clients who are asked to basically use day cabs and and provide a hostling service, and you know they use they use older equipment and, and employees, and they get the cost down. And that was where I was getting the six or seven hundred dollar deal. But I mean, good lord, if you uh, if you got a contemporary payment uh, on a truck that runs uh, uh, that runs you a hundred dollars a day. Uh, you know, you got a different hundred dollars a working day. Then you got a different, a different scenario to start with. So, uh, Rico's definitely right that you got to sit down and look at what your fixed insurance costs are, what your what your payments is, what your maintenance is, what's uh, uh, you know fair for you, uh, and then uh, you know after you've got all of your compliance costs and hassle put into it, uh, you know what's going to earn you a you know a twenty percent markup. Right, right. And we got uh let's see, we got Rhonda that has a question pertaining to Bill of Lading. Rhonda, you're on live free going Hank, how can we help? Yes, sir. I've, I've actually got two questions. One's about the Bill of Lading and the second one's about a contract. Um, I was just wondering Signature of the condensor. Who needs to find that? That is. Oh, infamous section about. number seven. Yeah, Rico. That is that is section seven of the bill of lading. <clears throat> that's supposed to be signed by the consignor if he does if he's shipping it COD to the consignee and he doesn't want to guarantee the carrier that uh, uh, the consignee will pay it. So, in other words, if I were if I were selling something uh, to Rico, and I said, uh, Rico, I'll 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 ship this to you, buddy, but you got to wire me the money first because I haven't done business with you. And I would sign section seven when the driver showed up because I wouldn't want the driver coming back to me if Rico didn't pay him. So that's okay. the reason that ordinarily a a consignor will sign that. And if he does, he's telling the smart trucker, hmm, I'd better be sure that the consignee is good for his money or I can put this on collect on delivery. You've got to lean on the freight, the payment of the freight charges, and if Section 7 is, is signed and you thought this was going to be a load by GE, but they ain't going to guarantee their distributor is going to pay the freight charges, then you may want to call the broker or the consignee and say, hey, look, buddy, uh, you know, I'm going to make delivery, but I need a, I need a check. Okay. Um, and the second question, sir, is um, I've just had a contract rework. I haven't signed it yet. Um, they wanted a right of segregation. I had that marked out. Um, and then <clears throat> they wanted... Um, also, the carrier waives any ethical law regarding process of claims and handling of salvage, including but not limited to the provisions of 49 CFR Part 370. Can you please touch on that because they won't waive that? 
Well, I think you ought to wave goodbye to them. Uh, okay. Let me tell you. Let me tell you what those two provisions are. Okay. First of all, the right of subrogation says that if your insurer paid a claim on your behalf, but that the shipper was half liable for it, as in, uh, let's say the insurance company paid a cargo claim, but one of the defenses was that it was shipper loading count and the constantine misloaded it, then the right of subrogation would mean your insurance company would be able to go against the shipper for contribution. Now, you see uh, a lot of uh, shippers and brokers wanting you to waive the right of subrogation, which has the effect of saying you're going to pay for the claim regardless of how liable they are. So it's another way to change an indemnity clause. Uh, I've got clients that will sign the waiver of subrogation uh, if their insurance company will allow. So in other words, uh, lots of times the shipper doesn't want to get embroiled in a lawsuit and they'll ask for that. Typically, a big insurance company, uh, when asked by a large carrier for a large volume of freight, may willingly sign a right of subrogation, but to go get your insurance company to waive subrogation to maybe have the opportunity to haul a freight for some broker, that's going to be hard to get them to waive it, and it's probably not a good idea because it dilutes your coverage. So well, yeah, I always just you, tell them, I always just tell them my insurance company won't do it, and usually I can get away with them waiving well, that. Well, that, that's, that's, that's the right and the simple answer. I gave you, I gave you a legal answer to a difficult insurance question. Well, what you're doing right. is 90, 90% of the time right. Now, the okay. second question yep. you, you ask goes right back into what I was reading, and that is that the insurance that you bought, if you're lucky, provides you for what we call legal liability for cargo loss or damage. That legal liability will show up in contract as 49 U.S.C. 14706 or the Carmack Amendment. It says very simply that you're liable for the destination market value of any goods damaged in transit subject to the obligation of the shipper and the consignee to mitigate the damages. And that's what you want because that's what you've got coverage for. So, for example, if the uh, load of beans going to the canner is worth uh, uh, $60,000 because that's what the invoice was, then your maximum claim under CARMAC would be $60,000. If they put in there that there's no obligation to mitigate damages, then a shipper can say, well, uh, the seal was broken, so we're not going to look at the contents of the beans, even though they were bagged and there's no evidence of interior uh, 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 terrace. So you're going to buy the whole load of beans, even though they're fit for human consumption at which time your insurance company ain't going to pay the claim and the shipper is going to look to you for 60 grand. Or the situation in which uh, the shipper says, oh, well, there's a bag of these beans that are open and we haven't got time to work it over the grocery store dock, so get it out of our face. And then all of a sudden the uh, somebody says, well, we've got the sole discretion to reject, crush, and dump this entire load uh, and we don't have to consult with anybody. Well, at that point, your insurance company ain't going to pay the claim because they didn't have a chance to examine the bean. So it's for all of those reasons that you can't sign that kind of provision. And when they say they want to take out, when they say they want to delete that uh, 370, what they're saying is they want to delete the ordinary process in which claims are handled, which is that the shipper... Uh, or the beneficial owner is required to file a cargo claim within nine months, and then there's certain other time limits that are set for you to respond and for them to file a lawsuit. Typically what they're trying to do is put you on a rocket docket towards deducting the money from your freight charge. Right, so right. Those are all... They also are- said... Well, when I questioned them, they said that they can't allow salvage of their customer's freight without their written permission to do so. Is there any way around that? 
Uh, well, yeah, there, there certainly is. Uh, you know, I've got I've got this going on all the time. You get a foodstuff manufacturer who's got quality control issues. Okay, so they say ARC AQ says that if uh, uh, if the uh, orange juice is chilled, it can't be refrozen and it's worthless. Well, that's not really the truth. It's still fit for human consumption. But they say, well, we've got our uh, brand name on it, so, you know, if it's two degrees out of the ground, we're going to trash it. Well, it's fine if they want to tell you that you can't sell It's fine if they say they've got AQ provisions that uh, require them to destroy it. But the issue really is, what is the value of the juice? And so what you need to do is you need to put in the thing that they have a duty to mitigate. And if they want to determine whether or not it can be salvaged, that's fine. But your maximum claim is whatever the retail value was minus the value of the condition. So that typically what you would do is you would have an inspector look at the, at the value of the orange juice, come up with the value of, uh, of how it could be sold, what the price is, and then your insurance company would would deduct the salvage value from the gross claims and pay them the net. And, you know, that way of doing it can uh, put a whole lot of money back on the table. Uh, I'm handling a case right now in which the load was rejected because uh, the reefer was on, and although most of the product in the load was things like, like beans, there were a few jars of... Uh, of uh, olive oil, and when it was delivered, somebody noticed that they'd gotten cloudy. So they rejected the whole flipping load. And the whole flipping load sat around in a warehouse for six months because nobody wanted to handle the claim. Now that the claim is being handled, the insurance company's coming in, doing an examination of the load, and ultimately the examiner's report is going to show that out of the $80,000 claim, 60000 of it at least, it is, uh, wouldn't have been a subject to temperature damage anyway, and the other 20 is still fit for use. So, you know, it, it's when a shipper says, we don't have any right to salvage it, you don't have any right to salvage it, a cargo claim is what we say it is, that, uh, you know, they end up getting in the carrier's pocket. So I hope all that uh, explanation shows uh, why you need to work with that. And uh, if you need help, Rico will give you my my number and you can send me the provisions and you know I'll, I'll try to mark them up for you and help you a bit in, in that regard uh rico has been asking me for months now when the, the new book's coming out and uh, i'm being told that it'll be within a month and then you know we'll be covering those kinds of issues in the book in terms of what to look for in contracts it's, it's the first time i've updated what i i wrote 13 years ago so it's time to be updated and we'll talk about that on a Maybe this time next month. Good deal, good deal. Well, Hank, we definitely appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to come on and talk with us and explain some of these things and demystify some of these uh, highfalutin words in these contracts to, to, to us uh, laymen's out here to make sure that we ain't out here making mistakes and stubbing our toe. So we definitely appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. And for anyone, uh, and also Mr. Freddie Waters told me to uh, told me to give you his bestie. He sent me a little text message. I referred him to you uh, uh, he was dealing with a little situation. Right, right, right. He was dealing with a little situation. But uh, but anyway, uh, if anyone has any needs for uh, Hank's services or anything like that, you can always catch, uh, go to Hank's website at transportationlaw.net. That's transportationlaw.net. And uh, they have phone numbers there on transportationlaw.net where you can get in contact with Hank and his associates over there. And those guys are more than willing to help you out. If you have a situation, they can definitely refer you to someone that's right there in your backyard and in your area. So I definitely, uh, uh, and I'm not just telling you something just because Hank comes on the show. I've actually used Hank uh, in their services over there. They helped me out. They referred me to a situ uh, to a, a, a different attorney in a different jurisdiction. It worked out very well for me. So definitely support Hank and, and the guys over there at, at the law firm there in uh, uh, up in Virginia. Hank is it's up in Tennessee. So 
definitely, definitely shouts out to those guys. And Hank's contact information is also on that website. Once again, that's transportationlaw.net. And I would be remiss in my duties if I didn't give a quick plug to everyone else that has the podcast here on the audio road. Uh, Tuesdays, yesterday's show uh, was Kenny Long, Trucking with Authority, every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Of course, Rates and Lanes here every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Wednesdays at 1 p.m., we have Kim Cochran and her show, Destination Health. And, of course, we have uh, Mike Beckett every Sunday night, 9 p.m., Rolling Toe. And the recording schedule for Kevin Rutherford and the Audio Road uh, show is Monday through Wednesday at 1 p.m. So you can always uh, jump on board and catch Kevin Rutherford live Monday through Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All of those times were Eastern Standard Time that I read off, by the way. Um, Hank, anything you want to say in closing before we get out of here? No, I think that's I think that's about all. Uh, look forward to talking to you guys next month. All right, well, we appreciate it once again, Hank, and thank you guys for taking time out of your busy schedule. We could not do it without you guys. We want to thank Kevin and Lisa Rutherford for helping us make this show possible. And uh, our new motto that I guess we're going to start closing out the show with is that we always want to work smarter and not harder. Until the next time, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you then. Be safe out there, everybody. God bless you and good night. Thanks for joining us on Rates and Lanes. If you like what you heard here, leave us a rating and review on iTunes or listen to our other shows at audioroad.letstruck.com. To get in touch with our tribe, call us at 855-800-PUEL. That's 855-800-3835. Thanks for joining us for the ride down the audio road.